And this is a debate because there is no right answer. If we all agreed on what the answer was, there would be no debate. So I'm going to present the yes part of the argument. And I actually do offer my patients that I take care of at the Pons Clinic, I offer them rectal pap smears. And then my esteemed colleague will be arguing the other side of the argument. Uh, no relevant financial disclosures. And then uh, the learning objectives that after attending the presentation, you'll be able to identify patients who are at highest risk for anal dysplasia, because I'm not arguing that you should screen everybody who comes into the clinic, that you'll be able to estimate the cost effectiveness of screening and what benefit it might be for your patients. And finally, that you'll be able to understand the basis for one of the largest states in our country has come out strongly in favor, and they have state guidelines on why you should do testing. So first question, is rectal carcinoma more or less common among MSMs who are HIV infected now than cervical cancer was at its peak in the United States among women? So simple question, more or less common? Okay, so there is a, you know, most people think it's more common, some people think it's less common. Which is most cost effective or more cost effective? Treating a 40-year-old male with a statin for a total cholesterol of greater than 300 or performing rectal dysplasia screening? Okay, so it looks like people think, I believe that that's more people think performing rectal dysplasia screening is cost effective. If high resolution anoscopy is available, is it a more or less cost effective strategy than starting with a rectal pap smear and then moving to HRA? So going HRA alone or HRA following? And most people think it's less cost effective. Okay. Do you currently perform rectal cytology for HIV-infected MSMs? And we left it a little vague. Choose your best answer. Okay, so most people never or sometimes, and a minority always. Do you currently give HPV vaccine to MSM in your practice? And you can answer yes if it's to young MSM. We're leaving it fairly vague. But do you currently vaccinate MSM for HPV? Okay, so most people don't screen and they don't vaccinate. All right, good. So I believe the next one. Okay, so I wanted to open up with some historical context, and that was the basis for that one question about whether HPV-associated rectal cancer is more or less common. 
And we all understand that the pap smear was one of the major medical advances of the 20th century. But what not a lot of people don't understand is it took a long time for it to become adapted, the cervical pap smear. You know, Papa Nicola described it in 1928. In 1941 is when he published enough data that people started to take it, pay attention to it. 55 was the first large study that was completed of the pap smear. Late 50s and 60s, this was a completely new technology. There was no specialty of cytotechnology. It did not exist. So they had to create an entire new specialty. And they had to train cytotechnologists across the country. And it then took another 30 to 40 years to really make sure that all the cytotechnologists that were reading the smears actually were able to do it appropriately. And there was big lawsuits across the country as late as the 1980s about the unreliability of cytotechnologists. And yet, despite that, by 1984, without all the standardization, without all the agreement about when you should do it, on what population, how frequently, just doing it dropped cervical cancer mortality by 82%. So in the 30 years after the description of the pap smear, but before its acceptance, cervical cancer was the number one cause of cancer mortality among women, far outweighing breast cancer and lung cancer and every other cancer. And now it clearly isn't. So this was rejected initially because it was new, it was different, it wasn't standardized, it required a lot of extra effort, uh, it cost additional money to screen. There was wide variability in results between labs. You could take the same smear and get 20 different readings from 20 different labs. And there was also, to some degree, a bias against women who had STIs, you know, who had uh, HPD, although it wasn't immediately apparent that that's what was causing cervical cancer, but it was to Papa Nicola. I mean, he could clearly see the link. So there were a lot of reasons why it wasn't rapidly adopted. So in HIV, the first really nice study of the anal pap smear among HIV-infected men actually was published in 1986, where they got serial rectal pap smears from men who were both HIV-positive and HIV-negative. And what they showed is that there was a high rate of dysplasia, that it was associated with rectal warts, frequent receptive anal sex, and HIV positive, and that HIV positive men on serial follow-ups were much more likely to have persistent dysplasia, whereas HIV negative MSMs were more likely to clear the virus and to have a return to normal uh, cytopathology. So here we are. 1986 to now, you know, in another three years, this will be 30 years since this seminal publication. So at the height of the U.S. cervical cancer epidemic, the incidence rate was 100 per 100,000 person years for women developing cervical cancer. What is the incidence of anal cancer per 100,000 years among HIV-infected MSM? Okay, so the, it's all over the board. You know, some people think it's one-tenth what it was among women, half what it was, about what it was. Very few people think it's higher than what it was among women at the height of the cervical cancer epidemic. 
Well, there's all sorts of data. You know, there's a lot of different publications and things that you can look at. But this is one slide which showed the incidence of anal cancer among people during the heart era, looking at 34,000 HIV-infected MSMs in North American cohorts. And the rate ranged from 130 to 160, basically, per 100,000 person years, which is 30 to 50% higher than the rate of cervical cancer incidence at the peak of the cervical cancer epidemic. So this is a big problem. You know, this is a major problem. Are all HIV-infected men equally at risk? No. You know, many studies have been done looking at who's at the highest risk. I'm not going to show every one of them, but this was a cross-sectional study of MSM and men who have sex with women, all of whom were HIV-infected. And they looked at dysplasia and what predicted it. One of the characteristics was a low CD4 count at the nadir a history of rectal condyloma, a history of frequent receptal anal intercourse, and across multiple studies, although the nadir T-cell count hasn't held up, being an HIV-infected MSM, having a history of warts, and having a history of frequent sexual partners, it's not the frequency of receptive sex, it's the frequency of partner change, have all pretty much correlated. So you can actually talk to your patients and find out who's at the most risk. And then a study that was done in the military, and Dr. Marconi from our clinic was one of the co-authors of this, they also looked at age. Because you don't see invasive anal cancer in 19-year-olds on, on average. You know, it's usually people who are older. And if you looked at people who had HIV for greater than 15 years, they were 12 times higher than those who had it for less than five years. So you can actually say to a patient, well, you're 20, you've had two partners, it may not be effective or beneficial to screen. Your other patient's 50, has had 30 partners. It may be beneficial to screen that patient. So one of the big controversies is how well does the anal pap smear do? And there's been meta-analyses. There's been review articles. There's a lot of variability when you compare pap smears to what you find on biopsy via high-resolution anoscopy. And there's not a great degree of correlation. There is you know, data here you can see from these various studies and then the strength of the correlation. And what you can see is that, in general, if somebody is sent to HRA or if an HRA is performed in people that otherwise have n normal smears, that there is a correlation. If you have a completely normal pap smear, you're not likely to find a lot of abnormalities on HRA. If you have a persistently abnormal pap smear, particularly if it's at high grades of dysplasia, then you're going to find abnormalities on HRA. In the middle area is where it's not really reliable. You know, you can have people that have just mild SIL on pap smear, and if you do an HRA, you might find CIM, basically. So in that middle area, it's very unreliable, the agreement between these two technologies. But really, the argument is about trying to detect cancer, not about how or what the reliability is between these two tests that are frequently done in sequence right now. And we're, I'm going to come back to this in a minute. The other argument is, well, is this cost effective? You know, you're doing all these things. There's extra tests. There's extra cost. You've got to send it to the pathologist. They've got to read it. They'll probably do reflex HPV testing. If you look at the cost effectiveness, this is one estimate. There were a couple others that were in this same range. They estimated 
that the cost per quality adjusted life year saved, which is the standard measurement that's considered the best, was about $16,000 for an HIV infected MSM if you did it annually. And it was even cheaper for an HIV negative MSM that was done a little less frequently. Now, what, where does this compare to what we commonly do in medical practice? Well, hypertensive screening for men age 40, you can see the cost here. Q2 year cervical pap smear in HIV uninfected women who are in their 30s is one of the most cost effective things we do in medicine. PCP prophylaxis, 16,000. So this is where HPV, I mean, where a cervical side of technology or cervical uh, screening hits, rectal screening, excuse me. A lot of other things we do, like treating diastolic blood pressure, giving statins, doing colonoscopies, or doing a cervical pap in an HPV-vaccinated young woman who's now you know, protected against the most cancer-inducing cervical or HPV types. These are much, much more expensive than doing rectal uh, screening for cytopathology. So it is cost-effective. Okay, and this is a rhetorical question. I'm not doing this with the answers, but so should this be done? Yes, we've been doing it for 28 years. There's a huge problem. We know that we're going to find problems when we do enough of these and that we'll catch some cancers. No, and I'm not going to give PCP prophylaxis statins or order any colonoscopies or you know, you're just not aggressive enough. I do much more than just doing the cervical screening. So there's actually been a couple of nice studies. This was the best one I, I could find, saying, why do we even do this rectal smear? Why don't we just do HLA on everybody who's at risk? You know, MSMs above a certain age who have you know, multiple sexual partners. And it was a large study. They took eight, 400 people. They did both the PAP and the HRA in every single person. And what they found is that 24% of them had AIN23 on biopsy during HRA. And then they looked at the sensitivity and specificity of HRA alone. But let me go on to the next smear, or next slide, from fixated on smears. And they did an amazingly cool you know, mathematical analysis doing all of the various combinations, you know, three smears alone, then HRA, two smears, then HRA, HRA alone, HRA followed by a smear, you know, all these crazy combinations that nobody would ever do in clinical practice. And what they found is that this is if you just go straight to HRA. It was by far the most cost-effective strategy, more cost-effective than doing a PAP followed by HRA. And, you know, I feel that if you have a high-risk person, you want to do the most effective strategy. If you had HRA available, this is clearly cost-effective. Now, they don't have a randomized study saying that you're going to catch more cancer this way and you're going to prevent invasive cancer, which is what we'd like to see. So this is not a conclusive study. Now, another study doing HRA said, well, you know, we biopsy things that look abnormal. What if we biopsy just randomly? You know, biopsy the things that look abnormal, and also do random biopsies. And what they found is that if you did random biopsies, 
that about 10% of the people had their significant abnormality diagnosed only on the random biopsy, and it was a higher grade than was found on the area that looked abnormal. So that means that either, even, either people who are doing HRA don't know what they're doing, or you can have significant abnormalities that aren't apparent by HRA. And I think the latter is more likely true, but if you're going to go for this strategy, you should probably do some random biopsies. So to conclude, I am of the opinion that the people in New York in this case are actually right. So that's why I'm arguing the pro side of this debate. Clinicians should obtain anal cytology at baseline and annually in high-risk populations. Men are sex with men. They say any patient with a history of anal genital carcinoma or women with abnormal cervical and or vulvar histology. And I'm not going to go into all the data supporting these two latter recommendations, but clearly I agree with this one. And these are my conclusions. For those with HIV of greater than five years, based on that military cohort study, if you had it available, use direct HRA, use PAP, followed by HRA if you don't do that, and when you do HRA, perform one to three random biopsies. So, now back to the questions. Is rectal carcinoma more or less common now than cervical carcinoma was? So most of you were paying attention, good. Okay, which is more cost-effective, treating a 40-year-old with a cholesterol of 300 with a statin or performing rectal dysplasia screening? Excellent. And if HRA is available and it's is it more or less cost-effective than starting with a rectal pap smear? Excellent. Okay, so now that I've convinced you of my side of the argument, it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Dr. Kimberly Warkowski, who's a professor of medicine, much more of an expert in sexually transmitted diseases than I, and serves on many esteemed national and international guidelines panels. <laughs> I will start by saying that, Jeff, um, the cervix does not equal the anus, number one. So, tattoo. <laughs> so I have no relevant uh, disclosures. What I'm going to try to convince you of and what I'm going to talk about is more of the public health. Do we have enough data to recommend this as a screening test as we do for, as we were alluding to, the uh, pap smear? I'm going to describe other prevention strategies. My own personal feeling is that we should use a combination approach, not uh, just a single approach for um, prevention of this, for AL cancer prevention. And I'm really going to talk about what's important in terms of the natural history um, of HPV, which you need to keep in mind. And if we want to have relevance to the cervix, we need to go back to the cervix and think about 
Um, when somebody gets infected with HPV, as you know, most cervical infections, um, when you acquire HPV within a couple of years, 18 to 24 months, that infection is gone, even if it's a high-risk HPV type. So let's talk a little bit um, about the natural history after I get an idea from you about um, what is the most important risk factor associated with the development of cancer precursors, which are high-grade uh, cellular changes. Older age, high-risk HPV types, the persistence of infection or immunodeficiency. I like it all over the place. So hopefully we'll look at a little bit of the data and we'll see if we can convince you about the right answer at the end. So let's talk about a little bit the natural history and go back to what uh, Dr. Lennox started with, which is talking about the cervix and most data that we have on the cervix. That really HPV persistence is the prerequisite for abnormal anogenital cytology. And as I mentioned, most of the data that we have in terms of cervical infection shows that most of these infections are self-limited. These were done on women that were coming into clinics and getting examined every six months and looking to see if you do acquire um, the HPV virus, what happens over time. And in most individuals, even those that acquire high-risk HPV types, it's gone over a shorter period of time. We, had li we have limited data, however, on these natural history studies by swabbing people's rectums. And I noticed that what seems to be common um, a number of years ago, you may remember when the DiGene assay came out and um, people were talking about knowing your HPV status. Um, and there was a big marketing campaign um, about that. So the issue is it's not about the virus here that may be transient. It's really does this virus persist? And so not a one-time um, HPV test. And I see people also um, Instead of doing anal pap smears, they're swabbing rectums to look for virus. We can talk about it. What does that really mean? You're getting a one-time hit on a virus. Does that really give you any information? It's really what happens over a length of time. And really, we don't have a lot of data on that natural history study of what happens to this virus over time in the anus. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about the end, the treatment. So you get a test, and Dr. Lennox has convinced you to go ahead and do a screen. You get an abnormal test. You see something abnormal. How are you going to treat them? Burning a cervix is not the same as burning a rectum. Your cervix will regenerate. Your anus will not. You have complications that could, um, could occur, such as anal stenosis. Are we really making a difference? So we find an abnormality. Is there an issue about regression? How many of, what percent will regress? We'll talk about that as well. And so the incidence and clearance rates between different types can differ. So the high-risk types tend to stay along a little uh, longer, the 16 and 18. Um, but we know that 16 has lower anal clearance rates. So this is um, a nice study that was done by Lori Markowitz looking at a uh, population-based sample looking at um, the serotypes that are found in the quadrivalent vaccine. And I just give you this to show you in terms of what the peak seroprevalence is um, per age group. 
And I just want you to keep in mind, this in the back of your mind as we start talking about, um, Dr. Lennox was talking about the incidence in um, goes up with age and thinking about age and thinking about your patient. And I don't know about your patients, but my patients don't always tell me the number of sexual partners that they have. I can't quickly categorize them into low risk and high risk because they don't always tell me the truth. So um, talking a little bit, the data we do have on clearance. This is uh, some data looking at the clearance of, again, um, types that we might find in our quadrivalent vaccine and the months since HPV detection. So when you're, when you're trying to study um, clearance and natural history, it's difficult to study somebody's cervix or anus if they're continuing to have sex. So that's one thing that's difficult because then you can introduce new infection. But the point here is that even if you acquire it in a different site, you can clear it quickly. And so we don't know if you swab somebody's rectum and find HPV, is it going to be there in 18 to 24 months and unless you follow them in a prospective way. And there are no guidelines that recommend swabbing people's uh, rectum and looking for HPV tests. So let's get back to the natural history. So the progression model for HPV-related disease. Remember, here's normal. You get infected with HPV, and you can spontaneously clear. Remember, most individuals will spontaneously clear. We know most about this natural history for cervical infection, as I mentioned. We don't have as much data for anal infection. What are the changes that push people this way? This is what we're nervous about. Can we identify some kind of marker that will help us? We know that in CIN2, in women, 50% of them will, will regress. Do we have that data in men? Do we know that even if you find AIN2 in a, in a rectum, what percent will spontaneously regress? We don't know. We don't have good natural history studies. So what about the influence of sexual behavior, the particular HPV genotypes, and then the other risk factors? Smoking, which we know is a big risk factor. Um, hormones and HIV and being on ART. ART doesn't seem to be protective at all. So the early natural history may be similar to the cervix, but these later stages we don't have good data on. We really need good biomarkers, which are starting to be looked at um, for, to understand the risk of progression. And again, the risk going from CIN, I mean AIN 1, 2, and 3 is not well understood. Um, most reports are anecdotal and heterogeneous, and we really need um, systemic evaluations also of treatment outcomes. There are no randomized controlled studies looking at treatment when it comes to uh, how do you treat AIN2. So you find AIN2, how are you going to treat it? Ablating a cervix or putting uh, a TCA or laser on an anus, like I said, it's not the same as doing that to a cervix. So taking that into context, we go back and we think about, from a public health standpoint, how do we think about screening and looking at the public health perspective? These are principles from the late 60s that basically we need to think about to institute a screening program. Is this an important health problem? Yes, I would agree. The magnitude of the problem, it's important. Is the natural history understood? I think what I'm trying to tell you is we don't quite know the natural history really in the rectum. Is there a suitable test that we can intervene and make a difference? I beg to differ in terms of a suitable test. Dr. Lennox talked to you about HRA. 
Raise your hand how many of you have it in your clinic who have access to HRA besides PONTS, besides the PONTS people. Who's got HRA? And I don't know, but most colorectal surgeons I know are not concerned about doing it. They just want to cut. They, they, don't, they don't want to follow somebody every six months. Is there a policy? Are there any guidelines for who to treat? Um, is there an accepted treatment? No. Are there facilities for diagnosis and treatment? What's the acceptable population to be screened? What are the benefits and harms? Again, if you find an AIM2, it's not the same as ablating um, somebody's uh, rectum. I mean, you can cause anal stenosis. Uh, so what are, the, what are the potential benefits? This was an um, article that was in CID in 2006, and this was basically a test, should we do this? This was a systematic review, 2006. The bottom line from this, I don't know if you can read it, but it basically um, we don't have enough um, data yet to recommend widespread screening. So let's jump ahead to 2012, a recent meta-analysis published in Lancet Oncology. Again, we don't have enough data um, to say on a population basis that we should be doing this. You have to have all the infrastructure needed. There are mul multiple different points along the way that we need to, we need to do. So we, we still don't have enough data on a wide scale. So what, what else can we do for primary prevention? Dr. Lennox talked about HPV vaccine. MSM may benefit from vaccination to prevent condyloma and anal cancer. We know that the ACIP recommends routine vaccination, um, HPV4, um, for all males uh, through age 26 who have not been previously vaccinated and to complete the three-dose series. Most of us don't have um, uh, very young folks like that in our clinic. I know I do. I've got a lot of less than 25-year-olds. Um, when we put this into context, the HPV vaccine e efficacy in terms of looking at what the efficacy of this vaccine is for the cervix, the vagina, anal precancer, and genital warts, it actually has very um, respectable efficacy. It's a very good primary prevention tool. And again, most of us are not doing it. We have data from New England Journal of Medicine two years ago um, looking at um, AIN efficacy and MSM, showing it works. It prevents genital warts. It works. We had some preliminary data, which I'll show you, in HIV-infected individuals. So the vaccine works if you give it. This is another intri uh, intriguing study that was just published in JID. Um, most of you know about the quadrivalent vaccine. You may not know that in development is a nanovalent vaccine um, for HPV. And this is just looking, I can't see it from here, but these, this, these uh, numbers are very little. Uh, it's hard to read, but on your slide, hopefully, what you can see is that as we get better in terms of the nanovalent vaccine, which, I, which is here on the right side, is that we're hitting more, we're hitting more um, types of HPV, and the efficacy will increase in terms of the other HPV types. Also, was this intriguing study recently, and this, this shouldn't have worked. This was a cohort of individuals that had high-grade anal dysplasia, and the um, investigator basically put them into two groups. One is he just observed them like he would normally do, have them come back and do high-resolution high anoscopy, and the other group, he vaccinated them. And, and what he basically found was that the time for his next, for the next treatment 
um, that they had to undergo was much less in the people that got vaccinated. And you're scratching your head and you're going, why should this work? Is there another effect that we're, we don't know about the vaccine? Um, because, you know, you would think that most of these individuals were previously infected by 16 or 18, which were causing their initial problems, but it seemed to have some benefit for them. So more investigation in terms of using this, either as, even as a uh, therapeutic, is interesting. So what about in HIV-infected individuals? We have some data um, from pediatric ACTG showing that it's immunogenic. These are geometric moon titers. It works. People seroconvert. Um, Tim Wilkin um, did a study, um, the first safety and immunogenicity study that was done, showing that it, it works. It's, it, people seroconvert. But those people were very well controlled with um, high CD4 counts. So I list for you here what I found recently in clinicaltrials.gov um, about what's coming in terms of what's being studied in HIV infected. You may have remembered that for the HPV vaccine, it's recommended you know, up to the age of 26. But this intriguing study that's going to be done at the NIH is comparing the quadrivalent vaccine versus placebo in the prevention of anal cancer in those HIV infected, and interestingly, including both men and women. And women, uh, men and women over the age of 27. So there's multiple um, studies that are, are happening, even through the ACTG, um, to look at this in people a little bit older men. So I think that we really should think about considering this. I'm doing this regularly in my clinic, um, especially the newer infected individuals that continue to be highly sexually active. I'm not really going to go into a little bit um, about the reducibility. We know that the pap smear is a, it's just a bad test. Dr. Lennox went over this, but just to say that it is a bad test. And if you order it and you do it, you're going to be forced to deal with the results. And then when it comes back abnormal, what are you going to do with the results? Do you have a colorectal surgeon that you're going to be able to call or somebody that you're going to be able to do high-resolute anoscopy? And then when you find it, what you, how are you going to treat those individuals? What about, um, I talked a little bit about the natural history in terms of the progression from low grade to high grade. So there are several studies that have looked at various risk factors, and I list them for you here in terms of the magnitude of the risk. And it's difficult, it's difficult for me to put all these on a pro and a con list when I have a patient in front of me. How many partners, um, how many times have they had anal sex? It gets really complicated. Um, so how are you really going to predict? And we can't do that. We can't clinically predict, are you going to be at high risk to, um, to progress, or are you going to be more likely to spontaneously regress? I think that's part of the problem. This was another study that was recently published um, in uh, Journal of Infectious Disease looking at other risk factors. Dr. Lennox brought this up in terms of Nader CD4 count, baseline CD4 count and the number of high-risk HPV types. So it's very complicated to try to determine who's going to progress. And then getting to guidelines. Um, the CDC HIVMA um, OI guidelines, the ones that are in draft, um, are basically say to consider. They don't say that everybody should do it. They should, you should you can consider it. The evidence is limited. We went over the problems, the gaps, in terms of the natural history 
We talked about the problems with the screening. Dr. Lennox is thinking about uh, advocating uh, high-resolution anoscopy. And I would counter that most of us don't um, have experience. You have to get trained to know how to do it. And we don't have the infrastructure. And even if you do it, what are we going to do with the results? Um, the safety and response to treatments, which I'll talk about. And you need a big programmatic support to get this thing going. Um, and again, to bring home the point that we shouldn't be swabbing people with HPV DNA of the rectum. It's not recommended. So I think that there needs to be a strategic, my approach would be something as a strategic combination prevention therapy. So we know the magnitude of the problem that was well described. Um, anal uh, high-risk HPV, um, very prevalent. Um, frequently, however, anal HPV, the other point about this, anal HPV can be frequently detected in people that totally deny anal sex. And how can that happen? There's been a number of studies, again, that have shown by digital um, manipulation of the rectum, either in heterosexuals or in, um, in gay or bisexual men, that that's very common in terms of the sexual practice. And you can transmit HPV that way. So for primary prevention, vaccine, I think we need to seriously consider vaccine. Um, male latex condom protects in areas where HPV is present. It's not perfect, um, but it does offer some protection. Circumcision, um, you're well aware of the three trials that were done in Africa showing a dramatic decrease in HIV acquisition with uh, circumcision. You may not also be aware that those trials also had a significant reduction in HPV acquisition, reduction of partners. And then the last thing is something we don't talk about a lot to our patients, and that's the use of rectal lubricants. All the currently available over-the-counter lubricants are hyperosmolar, which means that you're going to slough your mucosa in some degree or another. None of that is really taken into account when we're talking about doing anal pap smears and talking to men about what they're using, or women, I don't want to discriminate, um, talking about what they're using for rectal lubrication. So all those factors are important. And I list an important reference for you um, about currently available rectal lubricants. So in terms of secondary prevention, if you, if you, are, if you do choose to do an anal pap, the natural history is unclear, 50%, again, of uh, CIN2 regress. We don't have good data in terms of anal, um, uh, anal dysplasia. We, we think we've got some retrospective data, less than 2% um, will regress. Um, anal cytology specificity is a problem. What about, um, what, what if you're detecting uh, the abnormality on your um, anal pap smears because they have acute HPV infection? And they keep having sex, and they keep getting reinfected with HPV. It's technically difficult. High-grade lesions may be missed. What about just doing an annual digital exam, a annually? Um, there's no study that has compared rectal screening versus an annual digital exam. What about treatment? The difficulty with um, comparing the cervix and the anus when you have um, tr undergo treatment for cervical um, dysplasia, you try to get into the transformation zone and remove it. You can't do that with, with um, anal cancer, or anal, excuse me, anal dysplasia, because you're going to cause um, significant trauma to the anal mucosa, and you can cause stenosis. What's our threshold for treatment? For CIN, um, for CIN it's CIN2. But I already told you 50% of them will regress. What is it for anal dysplasia? 
We don't know. Um, we know that the efficacy of treating, if you are going to treat, the efficacy is greater for CIN versus high-grade AIN. And there's limited data on toxicity. And if you do create, if you do treat, decide to treat, you have a very high recurrence rate because you can't get into that transformation zone. So for prevention, vaccination, does screening reduce anal cancer-specific mortality? So when we're doing those studies, the other thing is, are we looking at anal cancer-specific mortality at an acceptable cost? Bottom line, no randomized trials suggest screening reduces mortality. Cost-effectiveness studies that were mentioned are variable, depending on whether you live on this side or the other side of uh, the ocean. What we need is research. Um, efficacy, acceptability of pre-invasive disease, understand the natural history of high-gan biomarkers, and we are planning to do with, um, in uh, some planning stages, talking about a Cochrane review. Uh, what really needs to be done, where the literature needs to lo be looked at specifically um, to make a public health um, recommendation for this. On an individual basis and as an individual clinician, I think you need to individualize this with your patients is my own, uh, my own uh, thought. So hopefully some of this information has been provocative, and we'll see if uh, Dr. Lennox has any uh, comments. to stand between these two uh, warriors. <laughs> Jeff, I'm really fearful of you at this, for, for you at this point. Um, so Jeff, why don't you start with a rebuttal? You have one minute. You know, I think that there's no arguing with Dr. Warkowski's very logical, reasoned argument against doing this. But, but those guidelines that she mentioned that were developed in the 60s, they were developed because cervical cancer screening was launched without evidence, was done by a very motivated group of individuals who wanted to make a difference, and said, we have enough to indicate that this might work. So if we had used those same criteria back in the 60s, in the 50s, women would have continued to die of cervical cancer well into the 80s at the same rate. I do think there are treatments that are available. You can find colorectal surgeons who are interested in this area. And I think that if you're a provider that wants to try and do something to try and make a difference in your patient's likelihood of developing invasive uh, rectal cancer, that you should follow a more aggressive approach, such as what I propose. And 30 years from now, we'll know whether it made a difference or not for the entire country. Time's up. Kim, you get the last word. Thank you. So I would just say again with what I started with, the anus is not the, the anus is not the cervix, and so um, I think that that it's very um, logical that we would like to think that the progression is the same. It's just not, um, and I would like you to think about a combination prevention strategy. And one of the easiest things that we can do um, is at least annually you're going to do an annual digital exam and to really consider using HPV vaccine uh, in the approach to the patient. Um, the, the difficulty that I see kind of going forward um, is this whole issue of getting a huge anal cancer screening program when we see the dramatic improvements that have been made 
in the incidence of genital warts um, I can use for an example in Australia. You may not be aware, but Australia several years ago um, had school, started school-based vaccination for, um, uh, in Australia for girls. There's been a dramatic decrease in genital warts um, and doctor visits um, related to that. Oh, you, oh sorry. And one more point. And the, the other thing that's happening is we're starting to get some of that data now in the United States. So I think that um, there's other things that we can do besides putting a swab in somebody's record. All right. Well, here's what I picked up <laughs> out of this. Jeff called Kim a slut. <laughs> Kim called Jeff an anus. I'd rather be a slut. <laughs> that's kind of how I come down to it. All right. It's been lovely. OK, so we have some time for questions from the audience. Or either one of these folks. And come to the microphone if you like. Yes, please. Just keep talking, it'll come on. The question is how much is to be gained simply by removing warts when visible? As far as cancer prevention, that's not likely to have any effect. Simple answer. So one of the questions that I have is, um, is certainly we can all point to cases of patients that we've taken care of who have invasive anal carcinoma, et cetera. But it just it feels like um, the data, I think, support it, that there just aren't that many cases. I think that was your point. Exactly. And so why is that, um, if you had to make a guess? Well, again, I think that we don't know enough about the natural history, and we don't have enough data in terms of the natural history of what happens in the anus. And when you talk about an area that continues to be have new, potentially new exposures, um, so new strains or whatever approached, and, and people are um, continuing to be sexually active, and there's new hits that are coming to the anus from other things. There's other factors we're not aware of. We talked about other things like um, smoking and the influence of smoking, um, other potential risk factors. We didn't even get into women um, in terms of, and we didn't get into this debate. We're just, I don't want to be sexist, but we're just talking about MSM. Or what about um, women in our clinic? Uh, should we be swabbing them? And so if there's a policy here, or do we really know that women, um, HIV-infected women have a higher risk of anal cancer um, than heterosexual women. Are you screening women in your clinic? Um, I would have to defer to my colleagues in the women's clinic, but I don't think we routinely do. That's sexist. So, yeah. so well, the, the rate is low. <laughs> now you're a sexist no. anus. <laughs> you sexist anus, you. The rate among women is much, much, much lower than among MSM. But it's MSM. still higher than... It's still higher, but it's much, exactly. much, much lower. So we're trying to focus our energies on where we can really make a difference. Well, we shouldn't focus our energy. It should be a consistent message, is my point, I is know. if you're going to do it. All right. Well, then we should also vaccinate every human being for HPV. Right? Yeah, this will be the last question. <laughs> in the All right. I'm going to dare to venture into this. Um, I'm Ron Trouble, I'm an ID fellow at Emory, so I know these two pretty well. Um, and the question is going to involve both the cervix and the anus uh, for both of you. With the new HPV um, vaccine out, uh, how is this going to change our screening uh, guidelines for both men and women? 
So there are no, I can answer this for, from the women's standpoint. So the women's standpoint, there is no change in cervical cancer screening guidelines if somebody gets vaccinated. You continue to do, the recommendations are continue to, to do your cervical cancer screen regardless of HPV vaccination. Remember that even though 16 and 18 cause the majority of cancers associated with cervical cancer, there's still 15 to 20 percent that aren't covered. So there's still a risk in terms of cervical cancer, and we don't have any guidance for men, so I can't, I can't comment on the men. I can tell you that the HIV-OI guidelines, which will be coming out, will have permissive recommendations for vaccination for HIV-infected. And we should be doing this. And I think we're not. All right, thank you very much. Let's finish with the question to the audience. Uh, please go ahead and vote. Um, Important risk factor for the development of cancer precursors. Okay, so it changed. So we're doing good. We can be taught. And then, yes. And in terms of screening, um, after the debate, you will screen more often, less often, or about the same. This is sort of who went to Oh. Oh. Sounds like, you're not going to see a parable now. Instead of the rabbit and the tortoise, it's the slut and the anus or something. In terms of HPV vaccinations, after this de debate, you will vaccinate more often, less often, or about the same? Ah, well, we have some success there. I think that was the last question. Yes. Okay, we have one more uh, lecture before lunch, and um, that is from Dr. Victor Valcor. Victor is a um, researcher and clinician at San Francisco, uh, University of California, San Francisco. He uh, started off in Hawaii, and while San Francisco is a great place to live, I'm not 100% sure why he moved east, but he's having a lot of great success at San Francisco in terms of assessment and